Political Science Podcast, and I'm Mark Lynch. On this week's episode, we're going to talk to Benjamin Smith and David Waldner about their new book, Rethinking the Resource Curse, Elements in the Politics of Development. We'll also talk to Kayvon Harris and Rasmus Elling about their article, Difference in Difference, about ethnic relations in Iran. And finally, we'll talk to Marcin Al-Shamari about the upcoming Iraqi election. Thanks for listening to our program. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and on this week's book segment, we're going to talk to David Waldner at the University of Virginia, Ben Smith, University of Florida, about their new Cambridge Elements book, Rethinking the Resource Curse. Uh, David, Ben, thanks for joining us. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting us. So... To start, maybe we can talk a little bit about the type of book this is. It's a fascinating uh, model for what you can do with different kinds of publication styles. And uh, I found it extremely useful, but maybe you could talk a little bit about how you thought about this book and what you were hoping to accomplish. Ben? Sure, okay. Um, So one of the things we really liked about this, this format is that on the one hand, unlike most peer reviewed journal articles, we have an opportunity to really, really do a deep dive into what's essentially a half century of scholarship, right? From its theoretical origins in Middle East cases all the way up to the <laughs> to the highly technical econometric stuff that sort of dominates the resource curse research now. Um, and that's one real benefit of it is that, you know, we felt if we were going to make a sort of frontal assault on on assuming the curse and moving forward from that assumption, we really had to do it justice. And so one of the benefits of this compared to peer-reviewed journal articles is the the expansive freedom to do that. The other is that, um, you know, writing a typical monograph can be a multi-year process. And, And we really wrote this, you know, in the first half of last year, in that sense, the first few months of the the, the pandemic lockdown were, were really productive for us because we were holed up meeting by Zoom a lot as we worked on respected part of the parts of the book. And so from my perspective, that's, you know, those are the main two reasons why we like this, this structure so much. And it's a real, it's a comprehensive literature review, but it's not just that because you really, really dig into uh, the assumptions behind the literature, the arguments and kind of where they agree and disagree. David, you wanna talk a little bit about the broader literature on the resource course, resource curse and where you guys are intervening? Sure. Well, the first thing to say is that the literature is enormous. And so we were hoping to do lots of people the, the favor of distilling that as much as possible. Obviously, we didn't get to speak about everything that's ever been published on it, but I think we, we, depicted, we depicted accurately all of the main arguments. The, the second thing to say is all of us now, we're overloaded by, by research that is directly relevant to our own or, or even tangentially related, and we all have to take heuristic shortcuts. And one of the things we do when we take those heuristic sh- shortcuts is we look for the bottom line. What's the main conclusion? And is that main conclusion, it, does it align with my own beliefs, my own, my own research hypotheses? Is it irrelevant to them? Is it contradictory, et cetera? And that means that, I'll speak for myself, but I don't think I'm unique in this, we read quickly. 
and we don't always capture all of the nuance. And we sort of keep a mental checklist or maybe even a, uh, you know, an, an enumerated set of comments in which we say this set of arguments goes in this footnote because it agrees with me. And this set of arguments goes in the next footnote because it doesn't agree with me. And one of the points we wanted to make is within each of those sets, however you define the sets of, of the way you're typologizing the literature, there is tremendous interest set heterogeneity. So if we sat down with all of the works that say oil matters for democracy, right? And then we dug just a little bit beneath the surface. We don't have to go all the way down into the, into the bedrock. We just go a little bit beneath the surface. We're gonna find massive amounts of heterogeneity. And, and so some, some parts of it is just different data sets, but it's more than just that. Much more than that. First, the, the nature of the claim itself matters. Right. So if you if you want to start by saying oil matters for democracy, well, oil can matter for democracy because it makes democratic regimes less democratic or oil can matter for democracy because it takes autocratic regimes and makes them more robust, more likely to survive uh, any number of, of threats to autocratic uh, durability. Those are two very different claims. Right. Um, and those two very different claims may be attached to two very different definitions of the regimes in question. And that can naturally lead to very different measures, right? If you're studying the effect on democracy, then you might want to use polity because that measures level. But if you wanted to, if you want to study autocratic durability, autocratic survival, then you use one of these data sets based upon binary indicators, right? And then right there, different measures lead to different statistical models. Right, OLS versus some form of logic and probate. And then when you go one step further, you start thinking about how are people going to deal with the very real threat of endogeneity. Where endogeneity means something very simple, like maybe levels of oil wealth are themselves a function of the political regime because different political regimes might have different propensities to extract oil, try to price oil differently, or even explore for oil or even in, in some cases, to record the fact that oil's been discovered. Um, so once you realize endogeneity is a problem, there are lots of different ways to try to control for it. And you know, we walk through these in the in the book, um, but they're not all consistent with one another. And it gets down to very fine-grained details, right? If you're doing a statistical study with time series data, the, you could spend in a large part of your professional life studying time series models. So, you know, very, very, to give you one example, if you have a dynamic time series model with a lag dependent variable, you have to worry about inducing bias. And there are a lot of different ways to try to cover this. And they generally fall under the category of um, generalized methods of moments estimators. And not surprisingly, there's more than one way to run a GMM estimator and people get different findings with different estimators. And then they argue about which estimator is the proper way to do it, et cetera. So it's, it's fascinating when you when you start comparing these models, how really robust findings from one data set end up being the opposite when you just specify things a little bit differently. Absolutely right. And so, you know, one of the lessons we want everyone to take away is don't be satisfied by saying the literature says X or the literature can be divided into X and non X, etc. We have to get into the habit of, of thinking and recording much more carefully what the literature actually says. Because, and this is a point Ben made from the very beginning, that literature creates an anchoring point. Mm -hmm. 
if you start by thinking oil is bad for democracy, you tend to read certain literatures and find certain literatures more credible, right? In a simple Bayesian model, it becomes much more difficult to disturb that initial finding, given the, 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 the seeming you know, mountains of evidence saying oil is bad for democracy. And next thing you know, people are just writing in that vein, whereas had we begun with a different set of cases and a different set of arguments, if the resource curse literature hadn't come out of the Middle East, but had come out of Pennsylvania, and Norway, et cetera, we might get a very different literature. Yeah, that's, no. a, that's a really uh, striking part of the book that comes out very clearly and, uh, and was, to me, it was quite eye-opening, was this regional heterogeneity that, you know, as a Middle East expert and for our audience, you know, we kind of take certain things for granted. But when the book goes through uh, Latin America, you know, post-Soviet cases, Africa, uh, things look really, really different. Um, ben, you know, tell us a little bit about that, like what the findings are, why it matters. Well, so, you know, this, the, the heterogeneity observation about Latin America, you know, that we show um, graphically in the book um, is, you know, pretty compatible with, with Fab Dunning's first book back in 2008, Crude Democracy. Um, you know, despite my skepticism about the redistributed model of democracy in general, I think he put it to really convincing use in the book by saying, okay, so... People think inequality is bad for democracy. People also think oil is bad for democracy. Why is it that when you combine these two in Latin America, it becomes the most democratic oil-rich region of the world, um, which is a really important insight. Whatever one thinks about the theoretical basis for the, the, you know, the distributive model, it is the case that you know, if you just produce a simple time series graph of regime type and oil in Mexico over the last 40 years, Oil and democracy are positively correlated, mm -hmm. and um, and that's the case in a lot of Latin American states. Whereas in in the Middle East and North Africa, you know, oil and autocracy have been have tracked pretty carefully over the last 40, 50 years. When we look at Africa and when we look at Southeast Asia, those are sort of mixed bags in which you get some durable regimes that are autocratic, some durable regimes that are democratic and oil-rich countries that fluctuate. And so, you know, just that simple observation um, without any statistical assumptions is actually also borne out in this really good meta-analysis that Anar Ahmadov did in 2014, where he finds really good systematic reason to believe in regional heterogeneity. And so that then leads us to start thinking, okay, so, you know, if it looks like oil either does different things in different parts of the world, or if oil is at least associated with different outcomes in different parts of the world, whether or not we think oil is doing the causing, we got to figure out why that is. And so one of the really, one of the really key things we, we came to believe was crucial in moving this research program forward is thinking about sort of prior theories and, and research on different parts of the world as coherent regions, right? That, that bring with them specific economic, historical, political attributes that probably interact with oil wealth in, in causally important ways. And, and for us, you know, that's sort of one of the biggest methodological takeaways is that the theoretical foundation of the resource curse is insensitive to and really not very good at accommodating heterogeneity. But 
you know, if we start thinking a little more deeply about oil as just one other thing that may affect countries' political economies, and we allow that to, to interact with a bunch of standard models about regional politics, as well as prominent theories of both democratization and regime change, suddenly we have a lot more opportunity to be sensitive to all that difference across regions. So there's two directions that you go that both of which are very interesting. Um, and uh, one of them, and, and maybe Ben, you can speak to this one, um, is really looking at different kinds of political coalitions, political institutions, and how oil might mediate through that. And then I want to talk, uh, David, I want you to talk about uh, the survivorship bias um, uh, issue, which is specific to the Gulf, which is just really new and interesting. Um, but Ben, could you just say a little bit about the move, theoretical move that you make towards political institutions and coalitions and how that affects the oil impact? Sure. Um, so I'll, I guess I'll, I'll probably try to make two points. One is that if you ignore oil in the study of comparative politics, and you think about the work that scholars writ large have done on what are the foundations of regime formation and subsist, you know, and, and, and persistence over time, they come down to political institutions, both ones that that you know that capture things like infrastructural power, but also the kinds of things that constrain or enable executive power. Um, those are pretty central to explaining regime outcomes political coalitions, right? To, to look at, at, at both David's first book and my first book, you know, political coalitions were absolutely central to those and they were formative of political, uh, political institutions, which then helped to shape not just political but economic outcomes. So to assume or, you know, to, or to start from a theoretical beginning point that oil is gonna do all this work to shape all that stuff is to ignore all that prior theoretical enrichment that we've had in comparative politics and in the study of regimes. And you know, so that, that simple observation that we shouldn't ignore all that work and we shouldn't keep it, we shouldn't sanitize the study of oil from it um, leads, leads us to start asking some more specific questions, right? So you know, if the growing body of econometric research that concludes that oil is you know, a modest blessing under conditions of strong institutions and, and effective governance. And absent those institutional settings is less likely, it's more likely to be a, a net negative. What we're basically saying is countries with weak institutions are gonna do better. Countries with strong, oh, sorry, gonna <laughs> do worse. Countries with strong institutions are gonna do better. And oil might modestly amplify those effects that are going to be there regardless. That's a more modest statement, right? And as somebody who's mostly written about resources and politics for the last 20 years, maybe I should not want us to, to make our conclusions more modest. But I think they'll be a lot more accurate. They'll also be a lot more useful if we start thinking about actually making policy recommendations to oil-rich developing countries, right, for a couple of reasons. If we're investing at this point literally billions of dollars in trying to cure or mitigate the resource curse, and we have significant non-zero reason to believe that resources are not really a curse, but maybe political institutions that are weak are the curse, we're throwing a lot of money in the wrong direction mm -hmm. and, and a lot of time and, and careful energy 
that might be better spent trying to improve governance, right? And, and it, I think there's a stronger consensus about the importance of governance than there is about the importance of resource wealth. Um, and so that's one, right? The other, and, and you know, I, I've spent a lot of time talking explicitly about this with Michael Ross, who's obviously not a skeptic of a resource curse. He's probably the political pioneer of it. Whether we agree that oil is good or bad is less relevant in the current world that is moving at a pace we're not quite sure of toward a post-carbon political economy future, right? So whether we think it's good or bad, it behooves all of us to start thinking about what the world's gonna look like 50 years from now for countries that are currently developing an oil rich, but in 50 years or some unspecified number of years may still be developing, but are gonna be non-oil states because the world will have moved on. If we have better foundations for figuring out how we get those countries from where we are today to where we want them to be, that is more prosperous, more inclusive, uh, and so forth, it behooves us to, you know, to, to sort of question those assumptions about the curse. I, I do like the optimism that we'll still be around in 50 years. So that's, that's something at least. Well, you know, <laughs> we may not be, the world will be, whether we're still the apex predator at the top of it, who knows? <laughs> All right. So a lot of what we think we know about the resource curse, and again, this comes out really clearly in the book, is based on uh, the, the small countries in the Gulf and Saudi Arabia. I mean, that's, you know, really, really shapes, especially for those of us who are MENA specialists, it really shapes the way we think about it. And uh, David, you, you and Ben have a, have a really distinct take on what's really happening with oil um, in those states. So walk us through that a little bit. Right. Well, uh, you know, Ben and I cut our teeth so to speak, reading those early monographs on the resource curse, which mostly came out of the Gulf. And then to some extent, Ben and I both started studying other countries in, in MENA um, and in comparison to countries outside of MENA and saying, well, you know, it's possible that we've overgeneralized based on these countries of the Gulf. And we both have believed that for a long time. And you can see that in our earlier work. It, 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 but it took, it took us a while to figure out methodologically what, is, you know, beyond saying context matters, don't overgeneralize, et cetera. It took us a while to figure out what's going on. So here's, in a nutshell, here, here's the, the story. Every political scientist today knows that, um, you know, one of the biggest sins you can commit is to select on the dependent variable. Um, and most of the time people say that if they're doing a cross national statistical study, particularly one that covers all countries, they can't possibly be selected on the dependent variable. Leaving aside for a moment the truncation on when you start your study, you can still have selections for time. Um, on the other hand, all of us know about survivorship bias. We all know this classic story about World War II in which uh, you know, the, the military brass were looking at planes that, that came back from bombing missions over Germany and looking at the pattern of damage to them and um, looking at the pattern of damage and deriving from that conclusions about how you should rearmor these planes to make them safer. And at some point they brought in a statistician from Columbia University named uh, Abraham Bald and he said, you've got a real problem here because you're only looking at the planes that survived. And that's a really compelling story. And I teach that to all my undergraduate students. And it, it becomes tricky because what you're saying is you can't just look at the data. You have to look at the data that you can't look at. 
So you have to have a model of the data generating process. And in econometrics, a data generating process means one thing about how you think values are assigned, what the errors look like. We mean literally, how do units get formed such that they can have attributes that we can record? Um, and so you know, one of the examples I like to use is if, if you look at the subcontinent on the eve of independence, um, what we today call India was composed of a large number, some several dozen princely states, and then areas that were under direct British control. And that all became a single unified independent India. The princely states were all dissolved. But go over to the Gulf, which is not that far away, and you see a, a, an Arabian Peninsula with a large Saudi Arabia, and then around the fringes, a large number of smaller, well, lo and behold, princely states. Um, and if you go back in history, you even know that some of those princely states disappeared, right? Um, uh, over on the Hejaz, <clears throat> um, uh, with, with which the Al Saud dynasty conquered in the early 1920s. So we started asking, why did Kuwait and Bahrain and the UAE, um, which of course had originally been or still is composed of, of smaller units, why did they all survive? Particularly because when you go back in history, it turns out the Al Saud dynasty considered the entire Eastern literal to be part of its dynastic patrimony and tried repeatedly to um, conquer uh, and, and uh, annex those territories. And the answer there is, well, British protection. The British decided somewhere around 1908 that they would be better off retaining these independent princedoms because at that same time, Britain was converting its Navy to from coal to petroleum and it needed to have access, reliable access to cheap oil. So then you go back and you think about survivorship or differential survivorship, the disappearance of the princely states and uh, the retention of the Gulf Emirates. And you've got to start thinking about a causal model. Is it possible that if we don't take differential rates of survivorship into account, we will be inducing bias? We will be creating a statistical association between oil and autocratic regimes that does not exist if we look at all of the cases. Where again, it's difficult to say exactly what all of the cases means because lots of places didn't survive. And you start thinking about it and around the world, you can identify if you go back to colonial history, any number of places in which we have one state, but it could have been in a slightly, slightly revised history, multiple states. Well, I'm not a huge fan of figures usually with their boxes and arrows, but you got a real nice one there where you basically just cut oil right out of the causal chain. Right. I, well, on the one hand, we cut oil out of the causal chain. On the other hand, we show that certain types of research strategies can make it look like oil belongs in the causal okay. chain. Yeah, it was very, really interesting there. So I'm a big fan of drawing causal graphs and, and <laughs> I, I, I'm doing work and how we can use causal graphs in, in a qualitative research tradition, which is where I'm most comfortable. Um, we need to be able to represent, well, write down for ourselves for heuristic reasons, but also to represent transparently to others all the assumptions we're making. And then we can think about, given those assumptions, what sorts of research designs will be compatible with those assumptions and what, which ones will not be. And that, it turns that, that out- really popped off the page. Yeah, and just throwing all your cases into a into a data set and driving conclusions is wrong. It's inducing bias, which was our hypothesis at least. That just led to one last question. How do we correct for this, 
right? So a lot of people think, well, you correct for the possibility of regional heterogeneity by throwing in a dummy variable, but that's wrong. That's utterly wrong. That, that will not correct. I won't go into the details here. You can read it in the book or in the article that we published, but that's simply on, on, in terms of statistical theory, wrong. Um, in the same way that it's wrong to control for income in a model on the effects of oil on democracy, because income is a post-treatment effect. Oil causes income levels, et cetera. So we, we, after thinking about this a lot, said, let's compare the actual world to the counterfactual world. We're in the counterfactual world. The British don't protect the Emirates and the Saudis annex them, which certainly would have happened. Nobody believes for a moment the Emirates were going to stand up on their own and be independent um, were, were it not for British protection. So we did this very simple thing, which was to create a mega Saudi state, taking all of the oil resources, et cetera, of the um, uh, Gulf Emirates and assigning them to, to, a, to a mega Saudi Arabia. Because what are we trying to do? We're trying to recreate the counterfactual world in which these cases didn't survive. And that, in that way, we're gonna control for differential rates of survival. And that means that our statistical test is not the conventional one of looking for uh, you know, p-values and a statistically significant hypothesis. We said, if you compare the actual data set to the counterfactual data set, you should find regression coefficients on oil that are substantively closer to zero. And that's what we found. Uh, really, really interesting. Now, you mentioned a minute ago that you're, you know, you feel more comfortable in the qualitative world, despite the fact that you're working with, you know, the, you know, the, the large end statistical analysis here. And there, there was a line uh, in the book that literally made me laugh out loud, um, where you said, causal models are, after all, nothing more than mathematical representations of our best guesses. Yeah, but, but, and then you illustrate that with this fascinating kind of short little dive into the Congo and different ways that people have understood in a qualitative sense, the impact of oil on politics there. And maybe one of you could talk a little bit about that, like the ways that you can do these mixed methodologies to try and dig into what's really going on when oil enters in to the political equation. I, I'll take a stab at it. Um, you know, this, the, we got this phrase that econometricians are fond of when we think about uh, the robustness of results and, and thinking about so, why some observations might be outliers. Um, so, you know, William Green, who's, who's written one of the sort of um, canonical texts on econometric methods, um, has a section in the book um, where he's like, okay, if you think some observations might be outliers, it's not enough to create a dummy variable for them and, and see if they affect the results. And if they do, then just conclude that they're outliers. Um, and you know, the, the specific variant or the specific translation of that, that insight that we confronted, you know, even back when we presented the early version of this at the POMAPS conference was, all right, so you know, at what point does this become sort of a reductive risk where we start pulling out all kinds of random cases and saying, you know, if we cherry pick these cases out, then suddenly the results don't hold up. That's really not what we were up to. And, and in fact, you know, we try to go to some, some real effort in both the book and this yeah. perspectives article to say, look, if we have reason, right, good theoretical and empirically grounded reason to believe that history produced a different data generating process 
for these five Gulf principalities, when it comes to thinking about the establishment and durability of dictatorship, then we can start thinking about these as statistical outliers, but only that, right? It's a high bar, but it's a high bar to me. And, um, you know, it's it, for us thinking about the long years that all three of us and all the area specialists out there have spent generating area expertise, right? Reading, you know, hundreds and thousands of books on, and articles in anthropology and sociology and economic history and a whole host of other things that have, that have generated these big, messy, qualitative data sets that we carry around in our heads. Mm -hmm. um, you know, those are the source of a lot of best guesses that we can then develop, you know, causal graph models or mathematical models to try and formalize to see if our historical slash qualitative hunches um, are, are in fact statistically representative of some problem out there that we can solve uh, by meshing our qualitative historical insights and econometric methods. And it goes both ways. I mean, the historians and anthropologists don't agree about how oil affected the Congo either. That's right. That's right. Well, you know, one of the nice things, right, and, in, in, you know, for, for, for David and me, you know, we've now been co-authoring for close to 10 years, bringing together our mix of, of you know, respective expertise or, or long years studying different parts of the Middle East and North Africa, as well as Southeast Asia, but also both thinking broadly as comparativists. Um, a lot of those insights are not ones that are likely to accrue in what's become the sort of predominant PhD program model in political science, where you do a maximum of two years of coursework, which are overwhelmingly methods, you get incredibly tapped up. And then what happens afterwards is as you begin developing, you know, an idea for a dissertation, you start asking a lot of senior colleagues, how should I situate this? And what they really, you know, that's code for in what research program would this correlation I found be really interesting. And, you know, one of the things we're doing is making, you know, I hope it doesn't sound like a rearguard case, but it's an empirical and an analytic and a methodological case for the value of all the insights we develop by spending years studying parts of the world that aren't immediately beneficial, right? In the same way that NASA used to throw tens of billions at science research, whose benefits were totally uncertain at the moment. Nobody knew back in 1960 that we'd wind up with you know, a world populated by smartphones because of research that came out of, of NASA funding. Um, and, you know, I, I know that it's a little bit of an uncertain case to make, but it's one that we believe in. So that's actually a great transition to what I think is the last question I wanted to throw out to both of you, which is, you know, when I read this, I just kept thinking, what a gift uh, to graduate students. Uh, the literature review, just this eat this uh, this uh, you know, proliferation of, of controversial hypotheses that might be tested and just all kinds of dissertation ideas just like thrown out there for free. Um, if you were advising some of them, as I imagine you are, where might you tell them to go? What do you think are the really compelling questions about the resource curse um, that remain kind of open for kind of a smart uh, graduate student to kind of try and pick up? Ben, you want to go first? Looks like David wants me to go first. <laughs> um, so I'm I'm 100 positive that that he, he's going to have ideas on this too. Um, but 
you know, I, I if I were to think about, um, you know, my sort of intellectual trajectory in terms of things that I've published, um, a lot of it has been based on questioning conventional wisdoms. And not just for the sake of questioning them, but because I've come to, to, you know, to, to learn and know things about specific cases that genuinely called into question broader assumptions or conventional wisdoms. And, and I don't think we shouldn't discourage graduate students from shying away from that, you know, it, not, or undergraduates for that matter, right? We're talking about here training PhD students, but there's simply so much in the world that, that we barely know anything about and to say 80% of the current scholarship on oil and politics, you know, suggests that oil is bad for democracy uh, doesn't mean very much, you know, in, in the grand scheme of things, because it's going to change and it's likely to change quickly, right? Prior to the 1980s, most economists thought that the, you know, the theory of comparative advantage meant oil rich countries were likely to be wildly successful in the, in the 50 years to come, um, which is just to say, you know, one, I encourage students not to shy away from questioning understood wisdoms, but that also means that I'm willing to, to push back in terms of our own departmental expectations about, you know, time to comprehensive exams, et cetera, to encourage my students to um, spend time really learning about specific regions of the world. And for me to make a case, um, you know, to the higher ups, everybody at my level and above, that this is something that should be valued and it should be valued as a function of what comes out of it, not whether it you know, violates our assumption about time to comprehensive exams by, by semester or two. Uh, great, David. So I'm going, to, I'm going to reject the question a little bit. <laughs> Fair enough. I, first, I'm very uneasy about being the lead mentor to graduate students anymore because they live in such a different world. Um, when I was a graduate student at Berkeley in the 19, uh, 1990s, um, the faculty there would say, ask a big question, spend a lot of years on your own, don't bother us, think about it. When you have a big answer, you can come back and publish a book. That was sort of the, the model we were given. And the model today is, oh my God, you better have five peer reviewed publications by the time you go on the job market or else you're not gonna get a job. And that is such a different world. And I don't personally know how to advise someone to work within that set of expectations. On the other hand, I also believe the entire social division of labor in political science has to change. That collaborative work, having multiple co-authors, three, four, five, six, has to become the norm. And that might even include really talented graduate students working on projects with faculty at their department as part of their dissertation. Because um, I simply do not believe, and, and this book tries to, tries to really justify that, that belief, that you can download some data sets or do some hard work combining data sets and maybe do a little bit of your own coding um, and then run some models or even these days run dozens of different models and do your own little meta-analysis. And so I don't think that's an appropriate way of, of doing work. And this isn't just in terms of the resource curse. Um, I have a perspective on how to write qualitative case studies. And one of the reactions people often uh, give me is, you're asking for too much. What you're 
what you're asking people to do would take you know too many years and and my response is if i'm right then your pragmatic response is 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 irrelevant and if i'm wrong then you don't have to worry about it so let's figure out whether the, the point is we need to have lots of people working together on projects because there are multiple aspects of this. To give one last example, something we didn't talk about yet, but Ben alluded to it, the theory of the resource curse. There are so many different theories of the resource curse. We try to enumerate them, and I don't know that it's, a, it's an exhaustive list. And all these different theories, even theories that say oil is somehow detrimental for democracy, they're not all compatible with each other in terms of their theoretical assumptions. They're not compatible with the broader literature. Nobody thinks pure modernization theory is right anymore as a general theory of democracy, after all. But a lot of work in the resource curse says, well, you get rich without becoming modern, therefore you're, dem you're not democratic. There's so much work to be done that I could imagine having a research team of regional specialists, advanced econometricians, et cetera, people working in tandem. And I can't say that to one student who has you know, two years of funding left and the expectation of three or four publications to go on the job market. So there's such a, a misalignment between what we expect of students um, to show their productivity and what we should be expecting of students to do high quality research that I, um, I don't know how to solve that problem right now, to be totally honest. Ben? The last, the last couple of things that David said immediately made me think of the German Institute for Global and Area Studies, um, which is pursuing exactly this model, right? They've got, you know, regionally, uh, regionally uh, organized team, collaborative teams of researchers that include multiple cultural anthropologists doing ethnographic field work in conflict and post-conflict regions, then going back to Hamburg and working collaboratively with econometricians um, essentially to synthesize, um, you know, mountains of, of qualitative data with, with quantitative data. And um, I'm, you know, I, I'm equally enthusiastic like David about the prospect of collaboration and the extent to which we should encourage and reward it as opposed to, you know, penalizing young scholars at the TNP stage by asking, well, you know, why did you collaborate so much and how much of this work did you actually do? I think we could ask that question in a better way. Obviously, we want scholars to have their own intellectual voice, but that isn't incompatible with them being collaborative scholars. Um, and, um, you know, I mean, we, we haven't talked about the, the other sort of um, quantitative project I, I, that we mentioned at the start of mine that, um, you know, came directly out of a hunch based on years of studying Iran and Iraq that turned out to be quantitatively verified. Um, but it's the kind of, of collaboration that um, I think we both think there's too little of and that we should do more to incentivize. Well, uh, David Waldner, Ben Smith, uh, thank you for this fascinating conversation um, and for your uh, really compelling new book, Rethinking the Resource Curse. Um, thanks for taking the time to speak with us. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and on this week's article segment, we're joined by Rasmus Elling of the University of Copenhagen and Kayvon Harris of UCLA to talk about their new article, Difference in Difference, Language, Geography, and Ethno-Racial Identity in Contemporary Iran. Uh, thanks for joining us. Thanks. Thank so, you, Mark. So let's just start with just a basic question. You know, what was the major motivation of this article? And, you know, what do you think the major contribution is? 
I guess this all started because uh, we both have an interest in getting some, bringing some nuance to a very sensitive and complicated debate about ethnicity and identity in Iran. And <clears throat> we, we hope that we can bring some historical sociological nuance to this debate. It's a debate that we argue is problematic uh, in some ways, or rather it's dominated by, uh, we single out three sort of dominant approaches to the question of ethnic identity in Iran that we find problematic for different uh, reasons. Uh, not that we discount them, uh, there's the discretizing approach, first of all, as we call it, conflating ethnicity, language, geography, uh, and creating, resulting in the kind of maps that we see circulate often on social media or by think tanks, journalists, also sometimes by scholars, that basically boils down uh, ethnic difference in Iran to uh, sort of uh, color, colored uh, segments of a map that mm -hmm. that is supposed to reflect a, a, a kind of a, a simple message that there are these neatly bordered mutually exclusive ethnic groups around the territory of Iran and we can sort of draw them on a map and see who lives where which is obviously not true because as anyone who's been to Iran knows people of different identities, uh, speaking different languages, adhering to different religions or sects, live literally door by door. A favorite example of mine is the city of Urumia in Western Iran, where you have, you know, Muslims, Shiites, Sunnis, Christians, Jews, Kurds, Azeri Turks, Persians uh, living uh, next to each other. Um, so this kind of groupism, the idea that you can boil down cultural differences in, in, in neatly bordered groups is one, one approach that we would like to, to challenge. And then there's a second approach, what we call the civic territorial nationalist approach, and we can get back to that. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but basically it subsumes or neglects or outright dismisses ethnic diversity in Iran in favor of this idea of Iranianness as an ethnicity and nationality that's, that sort of subsumes every other kind of cultural difference there may be in Iran. in Iran, And this is something we know particularly from Iranian nationalism, but from across the spectrum, I should say, this is both something you, would, you could imagine hearing from, from the Shah uh, of Iran and from Imam Khomeini when he was in power. So the, the idea that basically we don't have a problem with ethnic difference here. We're all Iranians and no matter what kind of a, a sub-national identity you may have, at the end of the day, you're Iranian and that trumps everything else. So a, a generous uh, way of understanding that approach would be to say that this is an inclusive way of understanding Iranianness, right? It's culturally pluralist and uh, it's often pointed out that some of the founding fathers of Iranian nationalism were not in fact Persians themselves. They were Turkic speaking, uh, speaking Azeris and so on. A less generous uh, way of looking at that kind of uh, idea of Iranianness would be to say that the whole project of modern nation state building in Iran since Reza Shah in the 1920s onwards has been based on an ide ideology that privileges Persian culture and specifically the Persian speaking Shiite and largely urban elite. 
and basically has taken Persian identity, to put it simply, and turned it into national identity and then forcibly uh, Persianized Iranian society. And that is, in fact, the third approach, the ethno-nationalist approach, which criticizes the former for being sort of a, a, a false facade of what is, in fact, uh, an attempt to homogenize Iranians, to Persianize them, and to wipe out or at least to minimize the, the, uh, the, the impact of non-Persian minority cultures in Iran. So subjugating them <clears throat> into this Persian-centric vision of what it means to be an Iranian. So our proposal, instead of these three uh, approaches, basically is to bring historical and sociological nuance and try to historicize, situate, and compare different modes of ethnic ascriptions, whether these be self-identifications by different groups in Iran or the way that they are categorized by other groups in Iran or by elites in Iran. And importantly, that these are not, the different approaches are actually not exclusive. I mean, uh, the, the, we, we argue that the Persian-centric nationalism and the rising self-awareness of non-Persian minorities in Iran is co-constitutive, right? It's, it's concurrently taking shape in modern Iranian history. So basically what we're saying is that we need much more research. And one of the ways of bringing nuance to, to this very thorny topic is to test out different methods, one of them being a nationally representative survey. The survey that you describe in the article, it, it's really innovative and in, in a number of ways, both by virtue of the uh, the kinds of questions you ask and how you're asking them. Um, Kayvon, do you want to say a little bit about this survey and um, kind of what you did with it for this particular question? Right. So this uh, approach methodologically, uh, we make a point in the article, uh, you know, has not been used uh, on the Middle East as much as in other parts of the global south and in you know, places like the United States. And the method here is instead of in a survey, usually in the demographic section at the end of a survey, you always ask, what is your race and ethnicity? Choose from one of the following. And then the enumerator reads, in, for example, in the United States, white, black, Asian American, um, uh, Hispanic. And so the choose from one of the following uh, kind of approach uh, used to be quite com common in 20th century uh, polling. <clears throat> but, uh, you know, as, as many people in the United States uh, realize, especially with the last uh, census returns, is that actually a large portion of, of uh, Americans identify as mixed, biracial, or see themselves, uh, you know, in checking more than one box. So, so thanks to social movements in the United States, and thanks to social movements actually in, in places like Latin America, um, uh, both uh, census administrators in states, as well as social scientists, usually prior to that, have attempted to um, allow for more open-ended approaches uh, to uh, survey um, interviews on identity and ethnic belonging. So, in fact, this is a, a method and an article that's produced from a method that, you know, it really borrows from comparativists comparativists in other regions. And I think that, um, you know, I, I benefited from reading scholars like Eddie Tejas, uh, who has done similar surveys in Latin America. And actually, just to be bluntly honest, you know, the, 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 the way that we do this survey, where we ask a, a totally open-ended question where we ask, you know, what is your um, uh, ethnic uh, belonging? Um, and we don't give any boxes. Uh, and we allow people to say whatever they want. And then we had the uh, enumerators code of the response. 
And then after people answered that question, and many people answered, I don't know, uh, or I don't understand, right? About 20% of, uh, of, our, of our survey respondents said something I don't know. Then the uh, uh, interviewers then asked, um, well, and gave a prime in the survey and said, well, uh, in Iran, some individuals might say that they were both Turkish and Lur. In your case, would you say that you belong to any of the following groups? And then list out the more common groups, but also provide another category. So moving from an open-ended uh, question about ethnic belonging uh, to a closed-ended set of list choices allows us to kind of um, be more precise and actually open, actually really open up the uh, the the, uh, the investigation of ethnic identity in Iran. So you know the survey findings, which were reported in the article, um, and in fact, this, this is the baseline of the survey. There's actually quite more that we can do with with this data and future work. Is that uh, a, you know a, a substantial percentage of survey respondents answered the open-ended question on ethnic identity with basically an I don't know. Um, there are many reasons why that could be possible, but one of them is that the category of ethnic belonging, at least when taking a survey, doesn't seem very salient. Um, partly this is you know, the, the result of the term ethnicity in Persian, called miat, which is not an everyday word all the time, mm -hmm. even in contemporary Iran. But you um, also asked about mother language and, uh, and other markers that might be relevant. Absolutely. So we separate the other, the other main approach in the survey, we separate out the three types of difference which are conflated uh, uh, from above uh, and from outside in Iran, which is people's origins, uh, their ahliyat, um, which is when you're saying, where are you from, right? In the United States, that would be the equivalent question uh, in Persian. Their, uh, the, their mother tongue, um, and, and then their, uh, their uh, everyday ethnic, ethnic identity when talking and answering a survey. So we separate these out conceptually, and then we have questions in the survey, try to get at them separately and see to what extent do they overlap. And so what do you, what do you think the most interesting and important findings uh, from the survey are? I mean, you know, so let's take the approaches that Rasmus has laid out. And of course, Rasmus is also, you know, was one of the innovators and applying a, a constructivist approach and a historicizing approach to ethnic and national identity run. And, you know, Rasmus in his book, uh, which is, you know, coming up almost nearly a decade, attempted to cut the Gordian knot, pun intended, um, of um, these two approaches where there is either a Iranian nation state, which is pure descendant from, if not the gods, then at least the ancients uh, and remains untouched to this day. Um, you know, which is a classic nationalist argument. In that sense, Iran is no more, no less nationalist than every other successful uh, nation state. And then the, the, the kind of, I would say, uh, ethnological approach, um, which, which you, know, you know, Iranians to a certain extent contributed to, but also has been heavily leaned upon in the West, which is that let's look at a map of Iran. Let's see what the villages speak. Those are the autochthonous and closed groups that are culturally different. And it's only through the power of uh, a uh, oriental despotism to, uh, to, that it keeps all of this chaos of cultural difference together. But at any time, uh, these, this, uh, these centrifugal pressures of, of difference that are rooted in the soil or you know, um, in culture uh, can, can destroy the country. I mean, it's commonly just the way that you hear it often in DC. So, so the, the, you know, the survey findings show that actually you can find everything under the sun you find both individuals um, who, um, you know, at least in this particular survey context, 
uh, don't seem to respond immediately to a prompt, open-ended prompt on ethnic identity, although you know their, their language backgrounds quite differ. There are, there are individuals who identify with a single ethnic category, uh, including the major ones that um, are, are known uh, in Iran, that we list uh, in Iran, both uh, the Persians as a kind of majority understanding, and then uh, Turks, Kurds, Arabs, Baluchis, et cetera. Uh, and then uh, something that both Rasmus and I know because we lived in Iran and have many Iranian friends and, and note how some Iranians talk about ethnic identity is that <clears throat> a sizable portion of respondents uh, put themselves in multiple ethnic categories. So, you know, a concept which is very easy to understand in the United States, which is multi-ethnic identity or multi-racial identity. Um, well, it's not because it's not exactly the same in Iran necessarily. Analog analogously, we wanted to introduce that to readers so that people understood that the way that many Iranians talk about ethnicity, as well as descent, as well as belonging, is not through mutually exclusive categories. So, Rasmus, using this kind of survey methodology, how does that change the way that you think about uh, researching these topics? I think it was it was fascinating trying to 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 work with this kind of data. Uh, obviously, I, I come from a slightly different background in Iranian studies and having worked on this more sort of in in, in a non-quant and a more sort of a historical way and 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 working with texts and so on and so forth. It it, it I, I don't want to you know pat my own shoulder, but it seemed to confirm some of the the suspicions I had when I wrote the book that that Kevin referred to, which is yeah almost yeah ten years old now. It's the, it's the fact that you meet so many Iranians who will tell you that even the word, you know, the word ethnicity is one thing, but even the word for Persian is, is still kind of awkward, right? So the word Persian as an ethnonym in Persian still, still seems sort of awkward to even use because it's mostly in contrast to a specific minority claim that Iranians will have to position themselves as Persians in Persian. It's different outside of Iran for different historical reasons. I, there are many reasons why Iranians in, 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 say, the United States might want to introduce themselves as Persians, but when are they actually prompted or forced to introduce themselves as Persians in an Iranian context in Persian language? And this is this this is where, on the one hand, I understand the argument from some of the minority activists saying, you know, obviously the majority doesn't see itself as an ethnic group; they see themselves as as the nation uh, embodied, and that's a privilege, and that's even you know it can even be you know discriminative or racist against some of the minorities. But on the other hand, I also understand that some Iranians might not want to be put into boxes, and they might say, you know, my mom is half. Uh, Azari and Kurd and my dad is half Turkmen and Lor and you know and I'm a Tehrani I come from from my, my city is what defines my identity apart from that I'm just Irani I'm Iranian and and that kind of uh, that kind of answer that kind of a uh, way of self-ascribing identity doesn't really fit into the, the kind of maps that we in the West would like to draw of diversity in, in the East, right? So, so that is in itself an important finding, I, I believe. Do you find that any of the, uh, any of the ethnic groups uh, seem to be more uh, kind of fixed or, or certain about their, you know, their ethnic identity as opposed to others? So, you know, we have a couple of just baseline figures in the in the article. Um, 
Uh, and that article, by the way, for listeners is available online, both, of course, with the usual ways. And then I think Rasmus and I both have it on our personal websites so people are listening. Um, so, you know, we were just, maybe the smaller, um, uh, uh, smaller sized ethnic uh, groups or classified sized might have a, a more, more coherent understanding, right? And that's, that's a good hypothesis. But at least in the in the survey findings, uh, we didn't see major variation between um, multi-ethnic identity from the majority category and, and the minority categories. Um, it, would, it would make sense uh, if, uh, let's say, Persianness was a majoritarian belief that um, you know more of them would see themselves as as multi-ethnic uh, or cosmopolitan, right? While minority groups would see themselves as kind of hard uh, and close. But we don't find that evidence uh, in Iran. And you know, let's just think, Mark, about like the, the kind of maps that we see on Iran with these ethnic groups drawn off uh, in particular geographical areas and covered, as Rasmus was mentioning. These maps, as we point out in the article, come from uh, linguistic surveys of, vil of major languages spoken at the village level. So in rural Iran, you know, in the 1970s and the early 1980s, right after the revolution. Uh, well, I mean, a lot's changed in Iran since, at least since the revolution, if not for the 20 years prior to that. Iran is a majority urban country. Uh, there's been all kinds of internal migration. Uh, marriage patterns have become more, uh, we call it in sociology, um, assorting, assortative mating, meaning that individuals marry by, you know, modern credentials like education and class as opposed to uh, origin credentials, slowly shifted. So, you know, the, the basic processes of demographic change, uh, educational attainment, and, you know, quote unquote modernization, or bundled under the concept of modernization, at least. I mean, how could these not have had an effect on individuals' identities over the past 30, 40 years? And yet, I mean, it is rarely reflected, both in scholarship, frankly, but also but really in, in, in popular coverage of Iran, that somehow this country is stuck in amber, uh, and that the, the population is stuck in amber. And I would say that, you know, that um, the way in which the subject of ethnic identity, ethnic belonging, or let's just say minority belonging in the Middle East writ large is still to a certain extent uh, approached from the outside, at least, uh, in, I would say, a very 19th century fashion, uh, which in other regions, Southeast Asia, uh, Latin America, and Sub-Saharan Africa, in political science itself, you know, would be laughable. I mean, it would be laughable. So I, I, what, what this article really does is it tries to bring um, Iranian studies, at least, I'll leave Middle East studies to others, um, Bring it up to speed with with approaches that are conducted uh, by you know social scientists in these regions, you know Latin America, Sub-Saharan Africa, et cetera, uh, and by you know comparativists, um, you know in political science uh, all over the world. Well, great! It sounds like a really promising start and some really interesting findings. Uh, Kayvon uh, Rasmus, thank you so much for joining us. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch. And we're joined now on our topics segment by Marcin Al-Shamari. Uh, she's a Baghdad-based political scientist. And uh, with, the, with the Iraqi elections coming up uh, very soon, uh, we wanted to check in and see how things look on the ground. Uh, Marcin, thanks for joining us again. Thank you so much, Mark. It's really great to be back on this podcast. So, uh, so what is the general mood then in terms of thinking about the, uh, the upcoming elections and the possibilities for political change? 
Well, the mood is electric in Baghdad right now from completely different perspectives. So on one hand, you have insane campaigning and posters that are the size of buildings everywhere in Baghdad. And then on the other hand, you have protests for electoral boycott by the same protesters who led the Tishreen movement two years ago. And, you know, the, the election is on October 10th and the anniversary of the protest was in October as well. So we have this... Um, we have a lot of uh, excitement in Baghdad, a lot of energy, and it's all political, you know, whether you think of boycott as being political or campaigning as being political. Let's talk about the arguments for the boycott. What is the um, what, what is the argument for for boycotting the election? Yeah, so it's really important to remember that these elections are early elections. And the reason they were brought about was by the Tishreen movement that happened October two years ago. So during those mass protests, what happened was there was a stepping down of the then Prime Minister Adel Abdel Mahdi, a new government under Prime Minister Al-Qadumi. And the government was supposed to be an interim government. And one of its main goals was to hold early elections because that was one of the demands of the protest movement. So, you know, looking at it from the surface, this election should be exactly what the protesters want. They wanted early elections, they got them. And in fact, we do have protest-based parties contesting these elections and running on them. But they're not running, or some of them are not running, some of the parties that are protest-based, and a lot of the electorate is also not participating, and a lot of them are the other protesters, because they think that although they have early elections, these elections aren't free and fair, they're not free of pre-electoral manipulation, and they don't think the environment has changed in a way that allows them to actually participate in a meaningful way. And by that, I mean there's been recent assassinations, kidnappings, intimidations of various activists and, and protesters and even those who want to be involved in, in running for office. So the reason that there's a boycott is because although there are elections, the environment isn't the one they asked for. And they think that by boycotting and by having a low voter turnout, they can delegitimize the next government. Now, there was a new, elect uh, a new electoral system that was designed uh, to kind of increase representation. Is that not compelling to the activists? That's actually one of the things that some of the activists did ask for, changing the way that the electoral districts worked. So in the past, Iraq actually started off as one big electoral district, and then it became along the 18 governorates. And now they've divided it even further so that there's multi-district multi governorates. So for example, in Baghdad right now, you know, I drive around and I go from like District 6 to District 12 and uh, there's different people who are who are running in different in different neighborhoods and different uh, suburbs of Baghdad. And what this is supposed to do is that it's actually supposed to uh, give space for local candidates to to beat out these, you know, brand name politicians who may be able to cobble up a lot of seats from going across the province. Mm -hmm. And what it has done is actually it has disincentivized a lot of the big name politicians from running because they had previously relied on getting a few seats from here and here and here and then massing those up to to translate into parliament. But now it's winner take all at a local level. So they're much better off playing their cards carefully. And so in theory, this is really good for smaller parties. This is really good for independent candidates, say like a professional who wants to win in his neighborhood or I mean, it's bigger than a neighborhood, but you know what I mean. 
mean, uh, someone who's well known in the community, right? But protesters and activists have been saying that this is also a really easy way for them to be targeted because mm -hmm. it becomes so clear where they're running. And not to mention, this is a really easy way to uh, manipulate the vote through gerrymandering. And then, of course, there's the broader sense that it's just very difficult to bring about change. Yeah, of course. I mean, the, the big debate is, is do we need a revolution or do we need reform? And if so, how to get reform? And I mean, the protesters themselves in 2019 were torn between these two opposing visions of do we seek change from within the system or do we completely upturn the system because it's entirely unsalvageable? Now, where do the big parties stand on this and, and these kind of major political figures that you mentioned a moment ago? They are proceeding as usual. Uh, they are running. They One of the ways that they've changed the way they run is you can clearly see that their campaigning is centered around uh, state building and about construction uh, and shifting more towards answering the demands of the protesters without well, making promises of answering their demands. And we see rhetoric really adjusting to to the public will. And this has happened before, specifically with the shift from Islamism to uh, civicness or secularism, whatever you want to call it. But um, this isn't the only thing that's really changed about how big name politicians are playing this out. Another thing that's changed is that they are running a lot less number of candidates than they previously were. So we've seen a, de a decline from about 7,000 to 3,000 over the last two election cycles. And I think one of the big things that happened that you probably saw is Muqtada Sadr saying he's going to boycott and then he came back on board. This is fairly usual for Muqtada Sadr. He's quite mercurial, so this, is, this isn't unexpected. And the fear was that he would boycott. Um, by other politicians, they feared this, and that would, that would cause them trouble in their uh, post-electoral um, legitimacy and, and uh, deciding who the prime minister is. But he's back now, and you know the, the same parties are, are contesting the elections again. New slogans, similar faces. There, there are um, a few new parties that are based off the protest movement. There is about nine that I counted. Five of them are running. Four of them, though, um, are boycotting. Now, in terms of the broader political context, of course, you mentioned uh, the assassinations before, and uh, there's been a lot of attention to the role of the militias. Um, and so how does that intersect with uh, the election campaign? Well, the role of the militias in Iraq is a very complicated one because a lot of times they bridge the state and militia divide. They kind of blur the line. So in some ways, many political parties have armed factions and those armed factions are implicit or sorry, are complicit in a lot of the violence against protesters. But it's not really easy to identify which and how in every single case. It's been really hard to to get uh, justice for a lot of the killed protesters. So, in you know, we saw since 2019 assassinations, and they've been ongoing um, until now. And one of the main reasons that we actually see boycotts was it seems like they hit a point of no return where they they killed an activist in Karbala, and that I think was a tipping point for so many people and so many parties that 
the, it made it clear that the environment was unsuitable for them. So, you know, unfortunately, things haven't really changed much. One of the changes I would say is that in 2019, we had um, a state of indiscriminate violence against anyone who went out to Tahrir. And if you went, you were risking something. And now it's more discriminate, but that's that's not uh, not a good development. Despite this, though, despite me saying this, I still see protest-based parties running, and I see some people have, you know, created a name for themselves. But unfortunately, you know, violence in Iraq isn't solely in the hands of the state actors that we traditionally associate with with state institutions. Now, one thing which does seem to be quite interesting and new is just how much more fragmented and competitive the uh, the, the Shia uh, political space seems to be. And I know this, you know, it, your, your own research um, has looked at that before. How do you interpret or how do you see these changes within kind of Shia politics? So one of the really interesting things that happened in 2019, and a lot of people noted this, is that a lot of the protesters were Shia protesters. And I mean, for various reasons, there was less participation from Sunni areas, and we can get into that in another time, and so many people have written about it. And of course, there were protests in Kurdish areas, but for the most part, uh, the the centers of the protests, Tahrir, and then uh, and then in Nasriya, and then in Najaf, and Karbala, and Basra, a lot of these cities, um, were had Shia protests, and this was particularly significant because it's seen as a Shia dominant government, and so it's you know in the simplest terms, it's their own constituents turning against them, right? Mm-hmm. But um, as a result of this, I haven't really seen a fragmentation of the political elite where it counts. So they will contest each other. They will, you know, they will compete against each other for resources, for popularity, for for patronage, for all these things. But when it comes down to it, it's and when it comes down to forming coalitions, when it comes down to selecting a prime minister, I don't see the same processes that existed um, previously. I don't see them going away anytime soon. I think. In, in some domains, they're much more, uh, they're, they're still united and in a way that's, that's going to be hard to, uh, hard to push through. So from that uh, perspective, it doesn't seem like the elections are likely to change very much. I mean, no, they're not likely to change very much. To be entirely honest, I think the likely outcome of the election is another coalition government without an opposition in parliament that decides on a prime minister, likely another weak independent, uh, independent in quotes, like Adil Abdel Mahdi or Mustafa Al-Kazmi, uh, meaning one without a, without a parliamentary backing in this case as well. And... I think this is a likely outcome. I think it's very unlikely to see drastic change, but I don't think that surprises you or anyone else. I think the nature of politics, specifically through through mechanisms that have you know developed their own norms and developed their own, uh, th- there's a stickiness to a lot of these things. And I I never think that there's going to be drastic change through the ballot box in Iraq. But that being said we are seeing five protest-based parties running, and I'm sure they'll face co-optation attempts, I'm sure they'll have incentives to form coalitions later on, but you know, it is still a sign that there is some kind of change occurring, and from a realistic perspective, most change has to be gradual. 
Now, from the, the people that you're talking about and what you're seeing, uh, what are the chances that the um, after the election that this then triggers like a resurgence of the Tishrin movement? Oh, it's very likely that we'll see more protests in Iraq's future. The fact is the underlying factors for protest have not been addressed. There's still poor services, specifically electricity and water, with no hope of that improving anytime soon. There's still a significant amount of unemployed youth. You know, I've been speaking to Iraqi youth from, from the south and from the north, and you know, everyone I talk to, when I ask them about how they feel about their future and whether they want to migrate, for example, the first thing that they'll talk about is economic opportunities and the lack thereof. And it feels very demeaning for a lot of these graduates who went through school and who spent a lot of time investing in their professional skills to emerge without a job. And I mean, this is this is the story of the Arab Spring, essentially, and the story of many protest movements and many, many revolutions as well in history. It's, it's economic grievances and the feelings of, of not being able to find employment. And that drives a lot of youth. And this isn't going away. And moreover, it's going to get worse because we have insane population growth with no long-term economic planning. We, you know, with, with the Prime Minister Mustafa al-Kadhimi, he had his finance minister and a team come up with this white paper for economic reforms. And it lays out beautifully our problems and their solutions, but there's been no implementation to it. Rocky population is growing in a very fast-paced and I, you know, I worry that there's never going to be enough employment at the at the response rate that we are responding with, which is primarily through public sector employment. And this is this is made worse by the fact that there is a socialist mentality around employment in Iraq that's very hard to shake off. And so our problem is very rooted. So. I, I know I'm basing a lot of the protests in, in, in economic reasons and unemployment, I know. But what I'm trying to say is that we, we will see protests so long as that so long as there are these factors like these youth. But the scope and the size and the nature of mobilization we saw in 2019, I'm not quite sure that can easily be replicated because that, there was a lot of communal mechanisms that drove people out to participate in 2019. There was a lot of novelty too, and now there's a lot of fatigue and there's a lot of, a lot of despair and sadness towards, the, uh, towards politics and the political system. So I don't know if, if we can ever reach the same size and scope, but I don't think, I don't think the days of protests are behind us. Well, thanks, Marcine, for joining us, and uh, we'll look forward to seeing how these elections play out. My pleasure. Thank you for having me.